Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. This morning we'll pray and then we'll get into this uh, wonderful story of the lame man being healed. Lord, we ask you to bring times of refreshing as your word is read and expounded, explained and proclaimed uh, by one very weak man. Will you make your strength known in weakness? May the word migrate into the inner corridors of our hearts and may it take up residence there and and make our consciences tender, our faith strong and our resolve emboldened. May the reading and preaching of your word be accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit so that your people would be saved, sanctified, and one day glorified Um, to the glory of the name of Jesus. It's in his name that we ask. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of the word. Sometimes we think uh, we'll read the word and then get on to the message. Well, the reading of the word is the message. That's the good part. The rest is, is... for what it's worth, but this is for sure uh, truth. So keep that in mind as we read the inspired, true, necessary uh, word of God. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. We as people and as a society have been hunting for something, I think, more rare and mystical than the abominable snowman or the Loch Ness Monster. And that thing is neutrality. Um, whether it's in the news or accounts of history, we, we say, if I only could get my hands on an unbiased account, then I would know the truth. As if such an account exists in anything but a fantasy world. <laughs> when it comes to biased reporting, what would be the next best, best, next best thing to neutrality? Well, in fact, what would be better than neutrality? If we could get our hands on a biased account that was 
bias toward truth. That would be better. If we could get the scoop from someone who really had the truth, that that would be the ideal, wouldn't it? From one perspective, we could say the Bible is uh, tainted history, and that it's tainted by a selective storytelling and commentary that's designed to report facts, but also to sway our opinions. Uh, it's uh, slanted, it's biased to promote a one-sided narrative. And of course, that storyteller is God. Who better to hear from? Who, who, who better to hear their opinion than God? If we're going to have biased history, we won't want to read the biased account from God's perspective. And that's what the book of Acts is. As a book of history, Luke, the historian, who is also inspired, carried along by the Holy Spirit, writes his account in a way that he's not only just reporting facts, but he's driving home a point by the facts he selects, by the order he puts them in, by the commentary he, he adds. Uh, his history preaches. It's a preaching history. And it preaches this truth, I think, that we read back in chapter 2. Know for certain that God has made him, that is the man Jesus Christ, both Lord and Christ. That's his point. In this passage we see yet again, uh, though it's not explicitly referenced, we see more Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled about this Christ, this Lord and Christ. The king has arrived, and his kingdom is being ushered in. Uh, that's that's the point. So in coming weeks, we'll look into Peter's sermon here in, in Acts 3, which gives us a lot of the whys for this story of the healing of the lame man, the, the theological underpinnings, if you will. But this morning, I just want to uh, look at this story. What does it mean? Uh, what does it mean for us? So we'll begin in verse 1. Uh, now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So again, we see these two sort of pillars of the apostles, Peter and John. Uh, we didn't spend much time on it back in verse 43 of chapter 2, but it did say many wonders and signs were being done by them. And I kind of skipped over that knowing that we'd be coming to this story. This is an example of one of the wonders and signs that the apostles were doing. And, and the apostle Paul, uh, Peter and the apostle John uh, were seemed to have a special calling by Jesus to lead the apostolic band. So these two men are going up to the temple together. It says they were going up at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. Uh, and the Jews, they had two basically two hours of prayer um, and the ninth hour was actually three o'clock because it starts at sunrise so this is the the evening or the afternoon time of prayer and they were going up together it seems that the the rhythms of jewish life were still a part of the christian uh, experience and expression in the early church in jerusalem and so they were continuing to go up to the temple to pray uh, and i think Though not like mandatory, I think those kind of things we would we'd be well to establish rhythms in our own lives. It doesn't have to be a three o'clock and a six, or a six o'clock prayer time, but rhythms and and liturgies 
provide structure to our lives and they are good. Uh, I personally would like to grow in this. Uh, the psalmist says that he, he would like to declare the loving kindness of the Lord in the morning and his faithfulness by night, this morning and night rhythm. The Reformers and Puritans commended the same practice, morning and evening prayer, morning and evening worship. And uh, a good resource for that is the Valley of Vision prayers of, of the Puritans. They have as a section in there, morning and evening prayers. And if you don't know where to begin, that's a good place. But they were going up at the ninth hour to pray. Um, and as has been true throughout Acts. Prayer continues to be an essential part of the ministry of the apostles. And then verse 2, a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. So again, as we know, and as we even talked about in Sunday school this morning, the Pharisees and the, and the, the Jews in the second temple period in the first century, much of their religion was merit-based. Giving of alms was a means of, of meriting righteousness. It was an important part of Judaism. And it's not quite like it was, or it, it wasn't like it is now so much in that it seems like from what I read, it was the blind and the lame and those people who truly couldn't work that, that asked for alms, that were put in these places to ask for alms. Um, and charity and almsgiving were an expected part of Judaism and the religion of Judaism. But this man's friends would would take him and haul him up to the temple every day, which is an amazing thing. I mean, they didn't have wheelchairs. They had to put him on a cot or something and carry him by hand every day to the temple. That's a, a remarkable uh, gift that these people were giving to this man. It seems like to me he was kind of in the best. It's almost like the best panhandling traffic light in the city. Like, this is the best spot, the center of the temple. He sat at the gate called the Beautiful Gate, which they're not sure which gate this was. The most popular opinion is that it's the gate leading from the court of the Gentiles to the court of women. So there was these courts, and, and the Gentiles were allowed in the outer court, and then the women were allowed in the inner court. And then the Jewish men were allowed in the court of the Jews, and then the priests were allowed to go in to the inner, the most inner court. Um, so they think that's what, what it was. Um, Sproul says that this was a large copper gate and even overlaid with gold and silver, which to me, if that's true, is a funny contrast to when Peter says, I don't have any gold or silver. <laughs> uh, that, that would be a funny irony if that is the case. This is a man lame from birth, and Craig Keener says that they, these people would tend to believe that congenital infirmities were harder to cure than other kinds. So this is a particularly sticky one. Because he was lame, this man also never likely went beyond that gate in the temple. Um, the, the Bible has purity laws about who can enter the temple. But uh, again, Keener says, although scripture forbade further entrance only to the unclean, some scholars suspect that the purity-centered temple establishment would have excluded the disabled from the inner court. So it's likely this man never went into the inner courts of the temple. And then in verse 3, verses 3 through 7, Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. 
And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. So I was thinking about it, and I don't know if my math is good, but it's not inconceivable that if this man was there all day, every day, he could have asked a hundred people a day for alms. Put his cup up and ask for alms. And if he did that only six days a week and, and say he'd been doing it for 30 years, that's like a million times asking for alms. And he was very familiar with this activity and he probably received every response under the sun. I think generally if, if somebody acknowledged his presence and, and talked to him or looked at him, he would expect to hear the, the clink in his cup. That's a good sign. So this is what uh, Peter and John do is they look at him directly and they say, look at us. And he was expecting to get something. There's a really interesting YouTube channel where this this guy who's formerly homeless, he goes around all these cities all over the U.S. and the world and he interviews homeless people about their story. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. But I remember, remember one young man who I think in, in London he seemed to be just down on his luck, homeless for a couple of months, still new to him, raw to him. And uh, the worst part for him was the filth, not being able to wash or brush teeth. And he expressed frustration that people would come by and hand him a sandwich. He's sick of people giving me a sandwich. I need to brush my teeth. I need, like, And so I'm sure when Peter says, Actually, I don't have any money for you, but I have something better. He's kind of thinking like, oh boy, what what weird thing am I going to get this time? <laughs> yeah. But he couldn't have imagined what he was going to receive. It says that in Peter said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him up by the right hand and raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Uh, so I, I broke my wrist in a basketball game in high school. I was going up for a layup, and this kid creamed me. I landed with my wrist back like this, um, and so I, I broke my wrist. But I, it wasn't that painful, and so I finished the game, played two more basketball games, and like a month later, it was still popping and sore. So we got an x-ray, and we brought it to the orthopedic surgeon. He looked at one slide, and he said, oh, it's fine. And my dad said, there's another slide. And he put it up and he goes, oh yeah, it needs surgery. <laughs> I had broken uh, one of these little bones in my wrist just straight in half. So they put me out. Uh, there's a tiny incision. You can hardly see the scar anymore. Just ran a screw right in there, fixed it. Then I had 12 weeks of wearing a, a splint and then the time to recover after that, to relearn to use my right hand, uh, to, to re-strengthen those muscles. Um, and so what you see here is not that. You see this man was healed in an instant. Jesus reordered his, his body, his bones, the things that were broken were, were put back together in just a moment's time. And this is something that would take us years or, or months of physical therapy. He did it in a moment. These, these ligaments were loosened and the muscles were strengthened in just a moment.
Now, it wasn't Peter, obviously, that healed this man. He was kind of the instrument in the surgeon's hand. And the way Peter puts it here is amazing. He says, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Um, Those are imperative verbs. Rise up and walk. He's commanding him in the name of Jesus. If you imagine Caesar, maybe he sent out one of his own emissaries to this man and and said, um, come to Tarsus. Just pick a random city. This man could do that and by obedience, Caesar has the authority to command him to do that. And if he had help, he could get himself to Tarsus. But if you imagine Caesar saying, sending his emissary to this man and saying, rise up and walk. See, Caesar doesn't have that kind of authority. But Peter's king, upon whose behalf he's an emissary, has that kind of authority to command someone who is lame to rise up and walk. This word, Nazareth, is also interesting. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The question was, in Jesus' day, can anything good come from Nazareth? And, and Peter emphasizes that, Nazareth. And, and Luke keeps it in his, his account, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I think it's because the, the, it's very important these people understand that it is this Jesus, this man who walked among them, who lived among them, who was born among them in Nazareth, He's the one. He's the Messiah. He is the Lord. And and it's by that man's authority that Peter commands this person to stand up and walk. So as always, it's always all about Jesus. If we read the Bible that way, remembering that, it's always all about Jesus because we always want to make it all about me. Our tendency is to read passages like this and think, how can I get me some of that? Right? Either I want to be a healer or I want to be healed. It's all very exciting and very shiny, and so we gravitate toward this idea. I would like a taste of the glory. When I was a kid, I was having the most vivid dream that I had the force. I could use the force and I could move stuff with my hands. And it was so real, I woke up and I started trying to do it. <laughs> that, that's the kind of thing. It's like, I want a little bit of that kind of power. We're, we're drawn to that kind of thing. But the point of these stories is to make us think, not, not how can I tap into some of that power, but you know, that's the error of Simon the Magician in a few chapters in chapter 8. Or, and it's, it's also not to think, how can I have some of that power for my own ailments? But how can I have the person who is the fountain of living waters? The point of these stories is to point us to Jesus, to direct us to Jesus. He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And verse 8, he continues to record this account and leaping up he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them walking and leaping and praising God and all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him 
So I think this is probably the first time in his life this man actually got to cross the threshold of that gate into the next court. And he did so, leaping and walking and rejoicing. It's, he, he, he's glorifying God by enjoying the gift he'd given him. And for those who are witnessing this now, they see this man who for years had been sitting by the gate, walking and and strolling into the temple and and rejoicing and jumping and leaping. And it says they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So it doesn't say yet that they began to glorify God with him. It just says they needed to take a moment to to scoop their jaws off the floor because this guy who'd been laying at the temple gate was now amongst them. I think that's the point of signs and wonders. Is a wonder is meant to be jaw-dropping. It's meant to cause wonder and awe. But by design, they are miraculous. Something outside of the the normal course of nature that that produces an a, a marveling in the witnesses. And they are signs. They are significant. They they're meant to show something. In this case, as we'll observe through the rest of the chapter, that they show, again, the authority of Christ in his new covenant kingdom. And it also gives Peter the great opportunity to preach the gospel again. Derek Thomas, he really helped me get some clarity on how to understand how this passage fits in to kind of the grand narrative and, and even into our own lives um, because, again, our temptation is to read into passages like these all kinds of things that are untrue and therefore unhelpful. For example, things like, if you will invoke the name of Jesus, you too can heal author- authoritatively and command illnesses and diseases to, to be gone. Or if you will believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus, you will be made well. Like the the whole idea that it's always God's will to heal, uh, manifestly untrue. These are lies, and and they produce in people a lot of heartache, and, and it undercuts the banks of their faith. If those things were true, why is it the case that I I suspect every single person in this room has an ailment, some of them more or less serious? For me, I've had severe asthma my whole life, and I have terrible feet, genetically. My feet will kill me by by the end of church. Minor compared to many of your ailments, but we all have them. Why? Why does not God heal everyone like he did this lame man? Paul himself had a thorn in the flesh that that God did not see fit to remove. So Derek Thomas, again, he was helpful here. He says, healings were signs of the coming kingdom of God. That's the point. They're signs of the coming kingdom of God. As Isaiah 35 had said so graphically, which Isaiah 35 says about the new covenant kingdom, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped And then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Then he goes on to say, the reason for sickness is sin. 
Now, it's important that we hear this next part as well. Not that we can necessarily draw a direct line from a specific sin to a specific illness, but apart from sin in the world, there would be no sickness. Jesus came to pay the penalty of sin that brought sickness into the world. By his stripes we are healed. He goes on to say, healing and atonement go together. So on the one hand, we make a mistake if we try to authoritatively denounce all diseases by by saying, by his stripes you are healed. As if Jesus died to heal all physical ailments of all people everywhere, if we'll only have faith enough to to tap into it, to receive it. That's one error. On the other hand, we, we can make a mistake if we say, Isaiah was only talking about spiritual healing when he said that. Because that's also not true. And that's the error, error that my disposition in theology is more inclined toward. But it's true. Jesus died to heal us from our diseases, our bodily ailments. Amen. Because his atonement saves from all effects of sin. So the point of this kind of story, and indeed the point of the apostles and of Acts, is to say, it's here. The time is here. The kingdom is here. Isaiah 35 is here. It's arrived with this person, Jesus Christ. So if we are going to enjoy these benefits of the the new kingdom in Christ, if we're going to enjoy the the renewal of our our sin-broken bodies, that is going to be found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Now we know that God still works supernaturally, uh, answering prayers, healing, uh, causing something like cancer to go away inexplicably, um, and people can debate, and it's a matter of definitions whether we call those miracles or not. Uh, but, But God does work supernaturally. And we do, and we should pray for those things. But we're also aware we live in the season of the already, not yet, the, the season of consummation, but but not of or of initiation, but not of consummation. Uh, Hebrews two makes that point very plain, um, and you're welcome to turn there if you want. Hebrews two. Hebrews 2 helps guard us from over-realized eschatologies, which is to say, an over-realized eschatology is saying, I want everything that's promised to me in the life to come, I want it now. I expect it now. That's an over-realized eschatology. And so Hebrews 2 guards us from that. Hebrews 2, 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. Psalm 8, I believe. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? He made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with the glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death 
for everyone. So what it's saying, I mean, this is ultimately about Jesus, but it's also about us in Jesus, and that we see in this world right now, not everything is, is perfect, not everything is in subjection yet. But what we do have is Jesus reigning on high, and we have atonement for our sins. So our ailments and our afflictions are designed to point us toward the glory that is in store for us. Because these, as painful as they seem right now, the Bible says are but light and momentary afflictions. And they're preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Trials and afflictions and ailments are a grace in themselves. And they preach to us the sufficiency of God's grace and the glory of a future fulfillment of our redemption. Of our redemption. So Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So in his history, Luke carried along by the Holy Spirit, continues to craft his story, to a biased story from the perspective of God. In his story, he's beating the same drum over and over again to say, it's arrived. He's arrived. It's here. The prophesied messianic kingdom has come with the Messiah, and that Messiah is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So whether in bounty or poverty, in sickness or health, in joy or sorrow, we have Jesus from Nazareth. The, the, the Christ ruling and reigning on high and the hope that one day He will return and usher in the fullness of the, of the redemption that He's already purchased for us. Amen.